Romans chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Everything is through Jesus Christ, Father. Everything is through Jesus Christ. All things were made by Him and for Him. In Him is all the fullness of deity. It's for Him we live. And for Him we will die. He's the ground of our hope. He's our daily bread. He's our joy. Would you magnify your Son, Father, in this hour? as you have so far. Just keep lifting up your Son before us. Now in the Word, I pray. Draw near, God, and grant ears to hear, I pray. Help me to speak the truth and speak it with faithfulness and faith and humility, and conviction, and winsomeness. And would you, by your Spirit, open the eyes of the blind and grant the gift of repentance, that some who, having been taken captive by the devil, might be delivered and believe and be saved. In Jesus' great name I pray. Amen. Let's begin with an arithmetic problem. If you have an infinite number and you subtract any finite number from it, what's the answer? Let me be specific. Infinity minus 10,000 equals what? Infinity. Only finite numbers become smaller when you subtract something from them. The very meaning of infinity is this. It is that which, when you take away from it, you have not less than before. That's the meaning of infinity. Boggles the mind to try to figure that out, but that's the meaning of it. Which, I take it then, certifies the final verse of Amazing Grace is mathematically accurate. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun... We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. Now, in this life, every day you live means one less to be lived. And the amount of life in front of you gets smaller and smaller 
and smaller in this life. In the next life, it will not be so. Every day you live in the life to come will not mean that there is any less time to be lived than before you lived that day. Now that's amazing. That's amazing. Why is that important in this text? It's important in this text because chapter 5 of Romans, which we are finishing today, begins and ends with two infinite realities which need each other to account for their infiniteness and which are needed for us to see so that the magnificence of the way God has chosen to save us would hit home with appropriate force. So if you get a handle on these two infinite realities, one at the beginning in verse 2 and one at the end in verse 21, if you get a handle on these two infinite realities, you may begin to feel why everything in the middle is so big and so weighty and so important. Let me start with the one at the end and show you what I mean. In verse 21, there is a reference to eternal life. Eternal Eternal life. Let's read that verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So God's aim in the work of redemption is for the triumph of grace to reign Unto eternal life through righteousness and through Jesus Christ. The goal is eternal life. Unto, unto eternal life. That means life with no end. It goes on and on and on. And once you've lived a million years of it, there is no less to be lived of it than there was before you lived the million years of it. It is of infinite duration. Question, is it infinite duration of boredom? Boring life forever and ever and ever. Is it the infinite duration of ordinary life? Is it the infinite duration of the, the best life you have ever known on this earth. None of life as we know it right now would be worth extending forever. In fact, if you let yourself think about it for a moment, the most exquisite pleasures that you know in this life would be almost excruciatingly painful on the ten thousandth repetition. <laughs> yes, they would. Yes, they would. You may need some imagination to believe that. <laughs> but it is so. Ten thousand, 
20,000, 30,000 of these same old ecstasies? It would not work. Which is why the other infinite reality at the beginning of the chapter is absolutely essential to make sense out of the infinite reality at the end of the chapter. Namely, I'm thinking of the glory of God in verse 2. Let me read verse 1 and verse 2 for you of the chapter, and you may think back to this sermon. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained an introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Now, instead of saying we have been justified, we have peace, we have access into grace, and therefore we have the hope of eternal life. He doesn't say that. He says, by way of content to that eternal duration, by way of content, he says, we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Our hope is the glory of God. And it takes an infinite duration of time for a finite creature to see and taste and know and admire and enjoy all there is to see and taste and admire and enjoy of the glory of God. It will take an infinite duration of days for a finite creature to absorb all the newness of the glory of God and what it can mean to our souls for our joy. So this glory, this glory is infinite. It's God's glory. There are no limits to this glory. There are no boundaries to this glory. Sometimes Paul, in reaching for language to try to help us feel the wonder of the hope of the glory of God. He says it in so many places. Remember that one over in chapter 8 where he says, I don't count the sufferings of this world worthy to be compared to the what? Glory about to be revealed to the children of God. When he's grasping for language to try to get a handle on it, he sometimes uses the phrase, I think about five times, riches of glory. Riches of glory. For example, in Romans 9, 23, God's purpose, he says, is to make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. You are prepared for glory. Children of God are redeemed for glory, for seeing and being caught up into and glorified by the glory of God. It is an infinite glory. Or Ephesians 1.18, he prayed that we would know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, or Philippians 4.19, he says, May God supply all your needs according to the riches in glory in Christ Jesus. It's a God-sized glory. It's God-sized treasure. 
wealth, riches. And therefore, it will never be exhausted, and therefore a finite creature... The reason I stress finite is because if you were an infinite creature, that's a contradiction. If you were infinite, you could experience it all in a moment without being crushed, but then you'd be God. But you're not God, you're finite... Your heart is small. It will never be a very big heart. It'll always be a creature's heart, a child's heart. And therefore, you can only stand a little bit of glory every day. And therefore, it's going to take endless days because God is an infinite repository of good news and glory and joy and power and beauty and wonder. His mercies are new every morning. And don't think that text stops at the end of history. It goes on and on and on. And they are new every morning. Meaning an endless duration of mornings has to exist in order for us to inherit the glory of God as finite creatures. Our effort to see and taste and admire and enjoy the glory of God now is like a little thimble trying to Boon out the Pacific Ocean. And if you were to enlarge the thimble to the size of the Pacific Ocean, it would still be a thimble compared to the ocean of the glory of God, which has no shores and no bottom ever. You think the Pacific Ocean is deep? Seven miles is deep. That's a lot of water. There's no bottom to the ocean. Of God's glory. No bottom. And no shores. We need some mathematicians in the crowd. It's physicists who get it today. It is. It's physicists who get it. They're starting to get it all over the world. It's they who feel the wonder. It's astronomers who begin to get it. People who watch TV and see silly stick figures everywhere and little blowings up. Everything's blowing up in movies, right? Just blowings up everywhere. We, people who are moved by that sort of thing, ooh, cool. They'll never get it. They'll never get it. Because their hearts have been so reduced to stupid, silly, banal, empty entertainments. When God is displaying His glory in the heavens every day, day unto day pours forth speech and night unto night knowledge. You want to see an explosion? Go outside and look at the stars some night and remember that that light began about a billion years ago, maybe. It takes an eternity in order to absorb the glory of God. Which raises this question for me. If it's God's purpose for his creatures to come to enjoy him for an eternity of days... Why didn't he just skip history? Why didn't he just skip sin and misery and 
tens of thousands of years of pain and wickedness. And just get to the point. Eternity with hearts enjoying the glory of God. Why this? Why Adam? The fall of Adam, our fall in Adam, our guilt, our condemnation, our contamination. Why the degeneration of humanity to the point of a flood? Why 2,000 years of sin and misery in the history of Israel? Why the incarnation and pain and, and horrible suffering and torture of the very Son of God? Why the resurrection, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? And now 2,000 years of church history in which the church oh so slowly is spreading the gospel through its imperfections. Why, Lord, not just skip all that? And take your holy angels, create some perfect people, and get on with the point of the glory of God enjoyed forever. That's my question. Why would he ordain such a history? You might say, well, he didn't ordain such a history. Um... He started it, and he had another kind of history in mind. And he didn't know this was going to turn out this way, and didn't plan for it, and is doing the best he can with it. You might say that. The problem with that view is that there are a lot of texts that talk about God's plan for this thing as it is before it happened. For example... You, you like eternal life the way it's promised now through Jesus Christ? When was that planned? Titus 1, 2. The hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before the times of the ages. Eternal life as we are going to inherit it through Jesus Christ was promised before the times of the ages. Or, what about grace, which is a response to sin through a suffering Messiah? When did that idea come into God's head as a plan? Same time, before the creation. 2 Timothy 1.9 We are saved by grace, which was granted to us. Grace was granted to us in Christ Jesus before the times of the ages. So, he planned it. He knew this history was going to be this way. He knew Adam would fall. He knew how he would set about redeeming humanity. He knew his son would be incarnate and die and rise. He knew the, the Holy Spirit would be poured out. The church would be gathered. Missions would happen. He knew it would take this long. The times are appointed by the Lord why then? Why? Now, to answer this question, what I want to do is take these two verses, 20 and 21 of chapter 5, and pose a smaller question, which I think answers the big one. Why the law? Why did God ordain that there be a Mosaic 
law? That's the question posed and answered in verse 20. And the answer given is so magnificent that it covers all the other questions as well. So let's ask this question. Why did God give the Mosaic law? Read the answer with me and then we'll talk about it. Verse 20. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. There's reason number one. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. There's another part of the answer. But notice how the next verse begins. So that, there's another purpose statement coming. So that, as sin reigned in death, even so, grace, this superabounding grace from verse 20, even so, this superabounding grace would reign through righteousness, there's another piece, to eternal life, there's another piece, through Jesus Christ our Lord, there's a final piece. So let's step back and get all this together. Why the law? Why the law? Where's it all leading? First answer, verse 20. The law came in so that transgression would increase. I take the singular transgression to refer to Adam's transgression. Because that's the way the words has been used in verse after verse after verse. Verse 15, by the transgression of the one, many died. Verse 17, by the transgression of the one, death reigned. Verse 18, through one transgression, there resulted. Now verse 20, the law came in so that the transgression. Why take it any differently than the three uses so far before? So I take verse 20 to be saying, the law came in so that Adam's transgression would increase. Meaning what? Meaning that this transgression in which we were all complicit by virtue of our union that God ordained for us to have with our forefather, this transgression, when in us it meets the law, creates millions of little atoms. One writer said, the function of the law is to make little atoms out of all of us. Meaning, Adam had a specific command, do not eat of the tree. He broke it. We inherit the guilt, the contamination, and as it were, it lies there in our hearts dormant until we get our own. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not kill. And then it rises up in rebellion and disobeys the specific commandment. And we become our own little Adam at that point. And the purpose of the law is to bring out of us that latent sin into activities where it is manifest to all heaven, hell, earth that we are sinners and our own little atoms. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. Why? Why would God want that to happen? 
Why would he want there to be multiplied transgressings of specific commandments all over the world? Millions upon millions. Remember it says in verse 15 or 16 that the righteousness or the justification arose from many transgressions. Why would he want that to be the case? It isn't his ultimate purpose. We see it in the next phrase, don't we? But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So the point of increased sinning is the superabounding of grace. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So God's purpose has something to do with the abounding of grace. Not merely the extension of more and more blatant sinnings, but with the abounding of grace. But this is not enough for Paul. Which is why you see now in verse 21, it begins with this phrase, so that. Such a crucial phrase. It means a purpose is coming. In other words, the multiplication of sins and then the superabounding of grace in verse 20 have a purpose that's going to be stated now in verse 21. And that's what we're after. Why the law? First answer, so sins will be multiplied. Second answer, so that grace would be super multiplied. But that's not the end of it. There's a purpose beyond in that little phrase, so that, at the beginning of verse 21. Let's read it. Sin increases, grace superabounds, so that as sin reigned in death, here it comes, even so, grace, namely this superabounding grace from verse 20, would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I hear the cymbals crashing and the timpani rolling and the trumpets blaring and the strings soaring as he comes to the climax of the symphony of chapter 5 to display to us in lavish colors and rich sounds why he does everything he does in redemptive history. That's what this verse is about. So let's take it one aspect at a time. First, the purpose of the law, the multiplication of sin, and the supermultiplication of grace is the triumph of grace. See it in the word reign there. He wants grace to reign triumphantly like a king. So the aim of grace multiplying in response to sins multiplying is to manifest a triumphant grace, a conquering grace, a powerful grace here. But that's not enough either. The goal of the triumphant grace, it is unto eternal life. Let's read that. As sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign to eternal life. Endless duration it's going to take, we said. Now we see something more clearly. It will take an endless duration of days in order to see and know and taste and admire and enjoy 
what? The abundance of the glory of the grace of God. Those two are put together in Ephesians 1, 6, where all of God's electing work and redeeming work is unto the praise of the glory of the grace of God. Praise of the glory of the grace of God. And so this grace, which is super abounding in response to multiplied sinning, is the capstone, the essence, the high point of the glory of God. And it will take eternal life, verse 21 says, it will take eternal life for us to enjoy it as we ought to enjoy it. If we stopped after 10 millions of years, we would dishonor grace because we wouldn't have had enough joy in grace to reflect all that grace is. It will take forever And your joy forever in it for its glory to be reflected back to God, to His honor. Anything short of eternity would dishonor grace. So you see what's at stake in your everlasting joy. Namely, a fitting, honorable response to the glory of grace. But he's not satisfied there. That's not enough. Paul's not going to stop there. There's some other parts of the orchestra that have to come in here for us to hear the full purpose for the law and the multiplication of sin and the superabounding of grace. And so he adds, through our Lord Jesus Christ at the end of this verse. Let's read it again. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Everything in Paul's mind, everything in Paul's heart, everything in the Bible is for this, the magnifying of Jesus Christ. It's his grace. It's his glory. In him is all the fullness of deity dwelling bodily. Everything is through him and for him. And therefore, lifting up Jesus Christ is the goal of the law. Lifting up Jesus Christ is the reason sins are multiplied. Lifting up Jesus Christ is the reason grace superabounds. Lifting up Jesus Christ is the reason it will triumphant and reign like a king. Lifting up Jesus Christ is the reason for all of redemptive history. And finally, he's not done yet. He has one more thing he wants to say, lest the whole point, verses 12 following, be missed. Namely, the word righteousness. Through righteousness. Let's read it again. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I take righteousness here to be the righteousness of Jesus Christ. From verse 18, as well as 19, as well as 17, as well as 15 and 16. So through one act of righteousness, that's where I believe he's getting the word righteousness. Verse 18, so through one act of righteousness... There resulted justification of life. One act of righteousness. One life fulfilling all righteousness. I can hear Jesus at every point saying the words at his baptism. John, it is fitting that we fulfill all righteousness. 
or to his own soul in Gethsemane when his heart cries out, Must I? Will I? It is fitting that I fulfill all righteousness. So this one glorious historical moment when all righteousness is fulfilled on our behalf, that too is the purpose of the law, the purpose of the multiplication of many sins, the purpose of the abounding of grace, the purpose of the reign of grace, the purpose of Jesus Christ through whom it all happens is that he was righteous for us. So let me sum up this chapter and we'll close with an act of worship to Jesus. Or let me sum up all of chapters 1 to 5. That's where we are. It's the closing of a major portion of the book of Romans. It goes like this. It's a big challenge. We try to do it in three minutes. There is none righteous. No, not one. Chapter 3, verse 10. And we have now seen that the reason for that is that Adam, our forefather, our head, our representative, sinned. And through one trespass, many were counted to be sinners. And we became guilty and condemned in him and contaminated through him and becoming our own little Adams as we hit the law of Moses and rebel against the specifics of God's will in our life. Therefore, nobody gets right with God through deeds done by us in righteousness. Rather, and this is what the first five chapters are all about. Rather, there is one hope for sinners, a second Adam, whose blood, chapter 5, verse 9, and righteousness, chapter 5, verse 18, cover all our sins and fill up all our account so that for the sake of his death and his life, we now inherit the hope of glory which will take an eternity to enjoy. That's chapters 1 to 5. And I left out one of the most important parts of the chapters. It is not by works, but by faith alone. Chapter 3, verse 28. Or chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access into this grace in which we stand and we exult in the hope of the glory of God eternally. And now would you be dismissed by simply remembering your arithmetic? Take away the arithmetic problem, would you? When you subtract from infinity 10,000, you get infinity. When you subtract from 
eternal days in God's presence, 10,000 days of joy, there are no less days to sing His praise than when you'd first begun. You're dismissed.